Let us pray. Glory to God who has given us salvation in his Son, Jesus Christ. Glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for the gift of thy holy word. May thy word take deep root in our hearts and bear forth much fruit in our lives. We pray thee, O God, that we may live according to thy word, walk according to thy word. When we stumble or fall, to repent and to stand anew in the truth of thy word and to one day die with thy word upon our lips and within our hearts that we may come to thy throne and receive thy mercies. Through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. We continue on this getting to be a hot summer time. Um, I think it's hotter in the church than it is outside, though. And uh, there's a little breeze outside. We need a little Holy Spirit breeze in here, I think. We're going to talk about, um, begin with, Uh, What are the types of literature in the Bible? The Bible is not one, just one type of literature all the way through. Um, The books of the Bible contain different kinds of writing. History, prophecy, parable, poetry, epistle, wisdom, and they, and they say, and others, and I'll add apocalyptic, like in Daniel and in the book of Revelation. Each kind of writing calls for an appropriate reading for the sake of understanding the truth it contains. For example, a poem is read and understood differently than a historical narrative or a parable. Does that make sense to everyone? And so there's all these different types of writing within the scriptures. So some people will say, well, I read the Bible and it means what it says and it says what it means. Well, that's true, but it's not always at the surface level. For example, when God in the Psalms says, I shall throw my sandal down on Edom. Let's be clear, God doesn't own a pair of sandals. Except for Jesus, being God, he probably owned a pair. But right, God the Father doesn't own a pair of sandals that he's going to throw down on, on Edom. right? Um, so uh, we, we have to remember that there's different types of literature within the Bible. So how do we interpret the Bible? Well, before we get into what they say here, I'd like to talk a little bit about how we as Anglicans uh, interpret um, Holy Scripture, the faith of the church. I believe that part of what has gotten us into trouble in the contemporary church is that we have lost our ability to think theologically as Anglicans. And you might say, well, but we're not theologians, Father Michael. Well, yes, you are. One of the early church fathers says, one who prays is a theologian, for you're contemplating God. Right? One who prays is a theologian. Every Christian, generally speaking, should, um, to the very best of their ability, try to understand and to comprehend things somewhat theologically. That is, in light of our understanding of God uh, and who God is and who he has revealed himself to be. So as Anglicans, when we're discerning something, we first look at what? What do you think? It's the first thing we look to when we're discerning something theologically. Archdeacon Michael? Archdeacon Michael, that's what you said? No. <laughs> and uh, to make my point, uh, uh, Deacon Praveen is correct. We look to God's Word, the Holy Bible, the Holy Scriptures. That's the first place we look when discerning something theologically. We don't look to our priest or to any other person. 
We don't look first to the Pope or to the teaching magisterium of the church or to any particular father or writer or to any great charismatic figure like Billy Graham or myself. We, we go first, all right, hold the laughing. <laughs> we go first to the scripture. We allow scripture to interpret Holy Scripture, right? So we start with the Word of God. What is the Word of God saying? And if we're looking at a a particular topic, we want to look throughout the Scriptures regarding that particular topic. What does God's Word say as a whole regarding this particular uh, topic? Okay, so we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. Then secondly, if there's any level of dispute or something that we need some um, deeper insight in, we can go to the received mind of the fathers of the ancient church. Now, no particular father, no particular father is infallible. No particular father uh, writings are equal to the Holy Scriptures. This is true even of Gregory of Nyssa. The fans go wild. In fact, I was just down doing my studies, and there was a wonderful guest speaker there. He teaches at Regent uh, uh, College right now in uh, British Columbia. Um, I didn't know this, uh, but it turns out he actually is, uh, attends one of our churches uh, in British Columbia, and will soon be taking up a new post at Neshota House Seminary. So it was kind of great. And um, he spoke just briefly to the uh, whole group for about uh, 15 minutes uh, about a book that of his, a new book, that will be released uh, in a couple of weeks. And, um, and he said that he was primarily influenced um, by Gregory of Nyssa, and so I was just like, ah, the fans go wild. So uh, you, you, you know how happy I was to hear that. But we don't look to any particular father. When we are interpreting, thinking theologically, we look firstly to Scripture, allowing Scripture to speak for itself as the Word of God, and allowing Scripture itself to interpret Scripture. Secondly, we uh, look to the mind of the early church fathers, where they spoke uh, with one heart and one voice regarding particular issues. Their particular writings can be informative for us as long as they are re-articulating in their own time what has come down to them through Christ and the apostles and the scriptures and the fathers before them. Okay. So we don't look to any particular person. So even though this document is part Anglican and part Lutheran, unlike our Lutheran brothers and sisters, we don't look, uh, give extra weight to a particular writer like Luther. Right? We would look back to the early church. And we certainly we don't look firstly to the writers of the English Reformation because they looked to the early church. So we look firstly at Holy Scripture, allowing Scripture to speak for itself and Scripture to interpret Scripture, number one. Number two, we look back at the uh, fathers of the ancient church, particularly where they spoke with one mind and voice and heart. Um, This would also include some of the ancient liturgies. How did the ancient Christians worship? Because how they worship tells us what they believed. Okay? Lex, uh, um, I may have it backwards, but lex orande, lex credende, which is our faith is articulated in our worship, in our prayer. Okay, so we'd look back to that. And then, of course, to the early church councils. Okay, Uh, those councils received by the whole church, east and west, as rightly articulating the faith of the church as found in Christ, the apostles, and the holy scriptures. So all of that is number two, and that's called sacred tradition, okay? It's not equal to Scripture, okay? Nothing uh, is equal to God's Word, which He has revealed, okay? Um, And God's Word uh, holds the highest position because 
It is the word of God. Yes, Emily. You know, that's a difficult thing to, to answer. I'm sure that the canon of the Great Fathers will come to a close upon my death. Um, that will be the end of it. They did that, well, no. Um, in, you know, it's tough. Anglicanism tends, and we'll get into this in a minute, tends to look at the first 500 years as having a particular importance because it was in those first 500 years that um, the canon of Scripture solidified the creeds in the first four councils, which we, we tend to augment the first four over the latter three of the first seven, um, are clearly articulated, rightly, the faith of the scriptures regarding the Trinity and the person of Jesus, one person with two natures, fully God and fully man, apart from sin, the two natures neither being confused nor divided, etc. So you have the, can- the development of the canon of Scripture solidifying in that time. You have the ancient creeds and councils. You have the writings of the earliest fathers who are articulating the mind and the history and the worship of the ancient church that was closest to the apostles and, and, and Jesus. Um, you, you also have... Um, uh, really an understanding has developed uh, more fully uh, regarding the sacraments as the mysteries of God that draw us into, into God, into the Trinity, the life of the Trinity and the person of Jesus, his incarnation. You have a develop, more developed understanding of the church as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ. Um, and um, you also have uh, really uh, a developed, in a sense, canonical understanding of the ordained ministry of bishops, priests, and deacons being ordained by bishops going back to Christ and the apostles. All of this is kind of worked out and solidified by the year 500. So there's a great emphasis on the first 500 years. Then I would say that the second stage then would be uh, looking back at the fathers of the undivided church, East and West, because um, they would balance one another often. So then you're talking for the first 1,054 years approximately. Um, However, uh, after that, I would say, um, fathers East and West, um, uh, the English reformers, even the the Protestant continental reformers, um, and then even some modern writers like uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, J.I. Packer, one of my favorite contemporaries, well, no, if Father Bob was here, on behalf of Father Bob, I'll say N.T. Wright. Uh, N.T. Wright. Um, uh, um, but no, Michael Ramsey. Michael Ramsey, former Archbishop of Canterbury, a blessed memory, um, who's really my favorite Anglican writer of the 20th century, um, and, and others. I would say where they have articulated anew the faith of the church in every age going back to those early days and the scriptures and the fathers, they too are now fathers of the church, right? So I'm sorry there's not a clear answer. It's kind of multifaceted, uh, uh, you know, answer uh, in, in that sense. So. so we firstly look to the Holy Scripture, allowing scripture to speak for itself and allowing scripture to interpret scripture. We then secondly look to the holy tradition of the church, which is not equal to uh, the scriptures. Um, Following the practice of the very ancient church, once the canon of scripture was established, the church saw itself as under the authority and primacy of the Bible as God's word. Because the books of the Bible were chosen as rightly articulating the apostolic faith of the apostles and of Christ, who was of God, the Father. Once established, they become the canon, the measuring stick, the ruler of what is truly apostolic. Okay, in the Roman church, they have elevated the teaching magisterium of the church to be of equal status with the Holy Scriptures. So we would reject that as being, firstly, non-biblical, secondly, as being uh, an innovation, okay, and never received by the whole church east and west, so therefore not Catholic by definition. The Eastern Orthodox Church understands uh, the first authority as tradition, and within tradition, the scriptures are a part 
uh, of, of it, okay? So part of why within the, the Catholic fellowships I choose to be an, Anglicanism, uh, an Anglican is because of the clear place of Holy Scripture within um, our Catholicism. We give the Word of God its pl rightful place, the primacy, the supremacy. Why? Because it's the Word of God, right? Because it's the Word of God and not the Word of, of man. So secondly, we would look to the early tradition. Thirdly, then, we would look to um, the Anglican formularies subject to the first two. So the Anglican formularies would be um, what the English reformers and subsequent generations uh, believed um, and articulated in the Book of Common Prayer, particularly the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, the 1662 Ordinal, which is the ordination rite, and its preface, so the preface to that rite, and then lastly, the 39 articles understood historically, okay? Um, and so we would turn to these things. And then subsequent writers, the great writers of the uh, evangelical movement of the 18th um, century, the Oxford Fathers of the 18th century, the ecumenical writers of the 20th century, but where they build upon. So firstly, to simplify, we look to scripture, to tradition, and to the Anglican formularies and other uh, Anglican writers and other writers of the, of the church, okay? That's how Anglicans do theology. Uh, unfortunately, how many Anglicans in North America do you think sitting in the pew, including sadly some clergy, if you said, as an Anglican, how do we do theology, would say, firstly, Holy Scripture, allowing Scripture to speak for itself and to interpret itself. Secondly, the holy tradition of the church and then be able to articulate what that is. And then thirdly, the Anglican formularies and subsequent writers and generations of the church building upon what has come, what we have, what has come down to us, what we have received. Sadly, not many. And this is why people base decisions on what they feel about something. So I'm not going to get into the particular topic, but if I were to bring up a controversial topic like the ordination of women priests in the church, do you think most people are firstly thinking, well, what do I believe about that? Well, what I believe is irrelevant. I need to go firstly to what God has revealed in Holy Scripture, allowing Scripture to speak for itself and to interpret itself. Secondly, then, to the early tradition of the church and the fathers where they speak with one mind and voice regarding the priesthood, right? Thirdly, to the, the formularies and subsequent writers building upon and so forth and so on. No, most people base it on what? What they believe and whether it makes sense to them, right? Right? So this is how Anglicans do theology. So before we move into the actual text, are there any questions about that? I really think this is an issue. When I first came here, and for a long, long time, when I used to do the rector's epistles every week and have a different topic, I don't know if you remember those days, um, but then uh, printing up something every week became uh, expensive for the church, and, and I had to stop it. And so, just stop it. Um, but I don't know if you remember, but whatever the topic was, let's say it was healing uh, through anointing. I would first give a scripture. Secondly, a quote from the early church fathers. And then thirdly, something from the Anglican uh, um, uh, formularies, uh, or like the prayer book tradition and so forth and so on, Right. And then every once in a while, a contemporary scholar building upon those, those things. What was I attempting to do? Teach us as Anglicans how to think theologically as Anglicans. Right. Uh, any questions? Okay. Yes, Diane.
That, 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 you know, that's, that's an excellent question. So the 1662 prayer book is seen as kind of holding a first among equals because it had an opportunity to kind of work out some of the more extremes of the Reformation by that point. Uh, so it kind of holds a special place. And when Anglicanism was being spread throughout the world, it really was the book that was being used everywhere throughout the world. So it kind of holds a, a really special place. But Anglicans have always said that unlike the Holy Scriptures, that there's a great um, richness, a great depth of wealth in the prayer book tradition. However, it is subject to change from time to time um, if, uh, without losing the essential content it could be changed in order to better relate to the people of that, that time. Uh, and this is true in Roman Catholicism, um, etc., throughout the church. And so the first book of uh, Common Prayer after the English Reformation was 1549. Um, and, uh, and then the second one was in 1552. It didn't last very long, however, um, in fact, it was only used for a very short time. It was rather Protestant or Reformed uh, um, book, and it wasn't used very long because Mary came back to the throne and returned the church for a short time back to Rome. And then Mary died, uh, Bloody Mary, as she is sadly known because of how many people she put to death. Um, and Elizabeth took the throne. So then you had the 1559 book, which uh, really was kind of a coming together of the first two, so that you had truly a, a reformed Catholic book of common prayer. The 1662 prayer book made minor changes to the 1559 book, and that's been the standard in England all this time. However, after the American Revolutionary War, we had some of our own based on the 1662, um, and then also some influences through the Scottish prayer book for historical reasons that uh, we don't have time to get into. Um, uh, and so the, the last traditional one being the 1928 Book of Common Prayer. What our province, the Anglican Church in North America, is working on now, they hope to have it done by 2019 sometime, or 2020 at the latest, is a new prayer book that will be based um, on the 1662, uh, also heavenly influenced, I'd say, by the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, and the 1962 Book of Common Prayer in Canada, um, and, uh, and yet also taking into account some new um, uh, uh, ecumenical scholarship um, as well. And so, uh, you know, so for example, uh, the while it's primarily the 1662 right, influenced by 1928 American, 1962 Canadian uh, books of common prayer, it begins with an opening acclamation. Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. Amen. None of those um, older prayer books uh, had an opening acclamation like that. But we know from scholarship that all of the ancient liturgies did. And so it's a paraphrase really of the Eastern Church, which starts off, Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. So that's uh, in there based on contemporary ecumenical scholarship of ancient texts. We're going to be producing a new one soon until the new prayer book is officially published um, that will have some uh, changes uh, in it. Uh, so, for example, just minor things, but it's always 
tough for us to get used to new things, but like the prayer of humble access will come before the honors day. So we're right now, we do the honors day followed by the prayer of humble access. Okay. Um, also based on ancient rites, uh, Eucharistic rites, the mystery of faith is put into one of the Eucharistic rites and is recommended as an option even in the historic prayer book rites. So in there will be an option um, for me to say at one point during the Eucharistic prayer, uh, let us profess the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Um, in fact, David is looking for a simple uh, English version of that for us all, all to sing. Uh, so I'll say, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. And it will be something like, you know, I have no idea what David's looking at, but I remember one from when I was a kid. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. And then I continue with the Eucharistic prayer. So that was never in any of the uh, post-English Reformation prayer books, but it's part of uh, contemporary ecumenical scholarship when looking at the ancient church. So some of that is brought in while attempting to be faithful to the 1662 prayer book tradition. Does that, did that make sense? Okay, good, good. Coming to a, uh, a worship booklet near you, yeah, very soon. So, <laughs> all right, so excellent question. I mean, that, that's a whole course in and of itself. And um, it, I wish if I could get the whole church family to come, all the adults, I would love, once this is printed, to go through, because I put in um, all the scriptural references and everything for what we say. I would love to go through from beginning to end the whole Eucharistic rite and why we do what we do, what's the scripture foundation, what is from the particular prayer book tradition, and what is added because of it being ancient. Uh, uh, li- li- ancient and liturgical, and that we, I mean, what a wonder. And just think when you come into worship, having that knowledge would make it just so much fuller, I believe, right? So much fuller, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the thing is, is that, uh, you know, how many people do that? But it is a great resource to have. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, so how should we interpret the Bible? Let's see what they've said. <laughs> the basic message of salvation in the Bible is clear. Other parts of the Bible are not always plain in themselves or clear to all. Peter wrote, for example, there are some things in Paul's epistles that are hard to understand. Uh, It's interesting, the only place in the New Testament that refers to any part of the New Testament being Scripture is that one verse from Peter where he says that uh, refers to Paul and his writings as being scriptural and says, however, they're hard to understand and some have even twisted them, right? Well, God forbid that doesn't happen. Thank goodness that doesn't happen anymore that anyone plays around with the word of God. We're beyond that now. You know. That's in 2 Peter 3.16. There are several principles of faithful orthodox interpretation. First, consider the type of literature being used and allow the text to dis- determine how it is to be understood. So allowing scripture within, you know, the particular um, uh, type of literature it is to speak for itself as the word of God. And as I said also, to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Second, we should remember the unity of the Bible. Well, here's Scripture interpreting Scripture, I'm sure. Second, we should remember the unity of the Bible in God's plan of redemption, Ephesians 1.10, understanding so that no one part of Scripture should ever be thought to contradict another. Look at this. How intelligent are they? 
Scripture interprets scripture, it says. <laughs> See that? It must be true, because, you know. Scripture interprets scripture. The clear, by the way, they came up with it before me, just so you know. Scripture interprets scripture, the clear parts helping to resolve those parts less clear. So, for example, when I was down in Florida, one of my new friends um, from um, the, the class I, I joined this particular uh, time uh, uh, belongs to the Reformed tradition. And so we were talking about the elect. And, you know, he was giving me, you know, a few scriptures. And I said, well, however, there are also places such as the, the, these scriptures that say, God wills that all men be saved. All men. Secondly, that Jesus died for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, not just the sins of the elect. Right? Also, uh, God desires not the death of a sinner, but that the sinner turn and repent and be saved. For God so loved the world, not the, just the elect, that he gave his only begotten son that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he said, ah, yes, but there's a lot in there about election. And I said, right, but we have to struggle with with all of it, we can't pit scripture against scripture, right? We have to deal with all of that. You can't say, I've come to this conclusion because of these passages here and ignore these passages here. Nor can I say, I reject that conclusion because I hold to these passages here. No, when doing, looking at this theologically, we have to deal with all of these scriptures, in discerning what God is revealing, right? Someone told me a great saying, and I don't know if it was from C.S. Lewis or who, but they said, um, uh, I know that there's something to election, and I know that there's something to free will. Moving on now. <laughs> and I thought that was excellent. That's really a, a good way of looking at it, I think. So, um, so they're saying, allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. The clear parts helping to resolve those parts less clear. Third, we should read the scriptures within the orthodox tradition of the whole church. So what are they saying? So first, allow scripture to speak for itself. It's the word of God. They made it number two. I kept it as part of number one. But, and, uh, and allow scripture to interpret scripture. And then... Um, uh, number, what's there, three, was my two, which is allow the early church to speak and to enable us to enter more fully into the depths of Holy Scripture. So they say, third, we should read the Scriptures within the Orthodox tradition of the whole church. So not what Michael McKinnon says, not what the Pope says, not what Billy Graham said, not what um, any particular writer said, or even Luther or Calvin, or whoever your favorite reformer is. But rather what was believed by the whole church, East and West, as being truly the apostolic faith revealed by God through Christ the Apostles, and his holy word. We stand on the shoulders of the great fathers and reformers of the church in order to see further and know the God of Scripture more fully. I like that. I've heard that before, but I had forgotten that about standing on the shoulders. What's that? Well, yes, a very similar idea here, right? You think of them as the giants of the faith. And we're going to stand on those shoulders, right? Fourth, the three great creeds, Apostles, Nicene, Athanasian, amplified by our Reformation confessions and articles and liturgies, should guide our understanding as they are rooted and established in Holy Scripture. And I would probably just add there, and building upon those before us who built upon those before us going all the way back. 
Um, I didn't mean to take out that dollar. I, I wanted to write down a note. Um, there it is. Anyone want a dollar? Um, so let me write something here, please, so I don't forget. Okay. Thank you. Um, so I, you know, I would, I would just add that uh, one little, little part. Um, we only have four minutes, so I'm, I'm going to stop there. And if there's any questions, I'll be happy to uh, to take those those questions or comments or thoughts. Yes, Emily. The, the, yep, um, so referring to Matthew, I think it's 1618 or 1816, uh, you are Peter, um, and upon this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How do Anglicans interpret that? And whatever you bind, right. So firstly, um, it is given to Peter there, who is speaking for all the apostles, but later uh, the risen Lord gives that authority to all of the apostles, and then there's a place where it references the church as a whole, when speaking as a whole, has that same uh, authority. Okay, so it moves from Peter kind of representing being the spokesperson of the apostles. There is a hierarchy, uh, a first among equals within it. It's Peter, James, and John, right? And then the other apostles. Okay, so we, um, uh, we would say, firstly, that was given to all of the apostles, Secondly, we would argue um, that if you go to the next verse, here uh, we are speaking about the essential of the faith, the essence of the faith, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? Uh, And then uh, Jesus gives him the, uh, fleshes that out for him and says, yes, and the Son of Man must be handed over and suffer and die and on the third day rise. And Peter says, no way, Jesus, that's not going to happen. Denying the very essence of the faith, the death and the incarnation, the death and resurrection of Christ as our salvation. And then Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but of man. So we have to, firstly, whatever that means, we have to remember that there is a great fallibility there uh, that's going on. And what's wonderful about Peter is that he's so fallible in some ways, right? And we, we can relate to him, right? Um, I used to joke, and I love St. Peter. I'm more of a Peter than a Paul kind of guy. Uh, Mary every once in a while, too. Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, um, but I, I love Peter, but I say that Peter, I, I can relate to him because he has his his foot in his mouth so often, he probably has athlete's tongue. I mean, you know, and so that's what I love about Peter. So I, I would say that if we look at that greater context um, there, there's great fallibility, even when speaking on the essence of the faith. The second thing I would, would point out is regarding giving the keys, that that's given to all the apostles and to the church as a whole uh, as well. The third thing I would point out is, what do Anglicans believe about this? Well, we believe what the early church fathers believed about it. And that is that some said that it referred to Peter as the head of the, the band of the apostles. Some said, no, the rock is faith in Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's upon that rock of faith that he would build his church, which to me just makes the most sense, Right. Um, others say, are saying, no, he's referring to the, the apostolic band as a whole, the apostolic college as a whole, that, you know, the church is built upon the, uh, the prophets and the apostles, right? Um, someone as great as St. Augustine, who I, I probably shouldn't say this on film, especially if any Lutherans are watching, not my favorite father, but to deny the influence Augustine had over the Western church, 
some have said that you know the the Western Church belong you know really is Christ and Saint Augustine, and that everyone after Saint Augustine's a footnote to Saint Augustine, right? So his influence is huge, um, but he's not one of my favorite though he's very much a favorite among Lutherans. Um, even he himself comes right out, and it's in that book that I uh, uh, by Vernon Staley he quotes this. Augustine comes right out and changes his mind, says, you know, I used to think that it was Peter himself as kind of the spokesperson for the whole, but I don't really anymore, and now I think it's... it's a, so this obviously was not something that was crystal clear to the early church fathers, and different fathers had different opinions. Um, and so uh, the next thing I would point out, too, is that Mark's gospel... If that's what Jesus meant, that this is Peter, right? You're the rock. And somehow that relates to you are the head of the church and you can speak infallibly and have jurisdiction over the whole church, east and west. Um, Somehow it jumps to there. (laughs) Um, uh, I would say that if Peter understood that, he certainly didn't find it important enough to include in his gospel, which is the one written by Mark. Mark's gospel narrative talks about the same thing but leaves that whole part of it out. So Peter didn't see it necessarily as being, look, this is something we've got to make sure. He just thought, well, you know, you know, you know the, the important part here is that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? That's the important. So Peter is speaking through Mark, Mark's writing in Peter's name, so to speak. And, um, and so Peter obviously didn't see it, you know, being that important. Also, I would point out then, if this were true and somehow corresponded to jurisdiction over the whole church, why is it then that when Peter is present at the first great council, which is the Apostolic Council of Jerusalem in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 15, Peter's there, he's, respect, he's given great respect and, and gives a very good speech, right? But he does not preside over the council. Um, James, the brother... Um, I don't want to get into all of that, but a relative of Jesus, not one of the 12 even, bishop, the first bishop of Jerusalem. So some of the apostles are there, including Peter, and they speak and really have a lot of influence, but they don't preside. James does as the bishop of Jerusalem. Um, so, you know, so that's kind of interesting as well. And then the last thing I would point out is that um, uh, Peter was also... It's never mentioned in, in the scriptures that he was ever bishop in Rome, right? It does, however, say that he did his ministry in Antioch. So how come the successors of Peter in Antioch don't carry this same authority? And I'll say one more, too. Um, Anglicans would also point out there's three orders of ministry. There's grace given for one to be a bishop, one to be a priest, one to be a deacon, there's no ordination of pope. So when do these extra, when are these extra, I don't want to say powers in a demeaning way. I'm not trying to demean their position. I'm just saying it's not biblical or patristic. I guess that sounds horrible, but it's not Catholic either. That position was never, ever accepted by the whole church east and west. There has never been a moment in history, not even a second, where the Bishop of Rome has had actual jurisdiction over the whole church east and west. And he did not have actual jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in the realm of England and the surrounding Celtic lands for the first seven and a half centuries. And then it would take several more centuries, really, for that authority to solidify. And then came the English Reformation, where they returned to the time where We've never said we're out of communion with the Bishop of Rome. We just say we're returning to the ancient church where he doesn't have direct jurisdiction over the church in this realm. So for all of those reasons, um, you you go back to the fathers. uh, Some would say it's that, Peter. Some would say it's the whole apostles. Some would say, no, it's clearly Christ. Um, I probably think it's a little bit of, of everything there, but the one that makes most sense to me, not that we base theology on what makes sense, but the one that seems clear to me might be a better way of articulating it is that Christ is the rock, right? And the faith in him as the son of the living God 
and then what he articulated immediately after that, that um, he will suffer and die and rise on the third day. This is the rock upon which we, we stand. But I don't deny that there's some uh, reference there to the fact that the church is built upon the prophets before us and the apostles as, as well. Um, but if there was some type of clear intended doctrine there, well, it's certainly not clear in Scripture. It certainly was never received by the whole church East and West. It certainly wasn't clear to the early church fathers, perhaps not even to Peter himself because Mark leaves that section out. And even someone as great uh, of an authority in the West as St. Augustine uh, flip-flops on it himself. Uh, So for all of those reasons, I would say, you know, what do Anglicans believe? Well, we believe what the scriptures clearly say and what the early church fathers were clear on. That doesn't fall in there, you, you know, so... Having, you know, having said that, we hold the Bishop of Rome in, in our respect as the Patriarch of the West. Um, many um, Anglicans would like to see a united church where perhaps the Pope would hold the place, the position that he held in the early church, and that is um, a place of a pastoral authority, of um, uh, kind of a first among equals, a father among fathers. Papa, Pope, Diane. Yeah, sure. I agree with you 100%. I would never want to take my ultimate stand upon the foundation of any human person who is not also fully God and fully man, our Lord Jesus Christ. I will stand uh, with Jesus and on the gospel. And as the great hymn says, everything else is uh, shifting sand. Shifting? Yeah, everything else is shifting sand, right? It's shifting sand. Uh, by the way, um, just for fun, um, uh, does anyone know uh, when the Pope first uh, clearly um, articulated that the uh, Bishop of Rome can speak on matters of faith and morals infallibly? No, he has. Well, no, there was something on that related to one of the statements. But it was first spoken that the Pope was infallible um, in, um, uh, I may get this wrong, but around 1871, 1871. Father Isaac is saying yes, so I got it right, 1871. 
And actually, the Pope made an infallible statement prior to declaring that he can speak infallibly. Um, and so that was in 1850, which was the Immaculate Conception of Mary, that Mary was conceived in the womb of her mother and without the taint of original sin, that she was kept free, not set free, which is a whole pro- problem, I would say, but that's a whole other uh, uh, class. Um, and then the second statement was in 1954, regarding the assumption of Mary into heaven. Um, and uh, so interestingly, uh, the Pope has only spoken um, uh, twice uh, in all of history uh, in the sense of speaking infallibly. Uh, unless you count his saying that he's infallible to be infallible, then I suppose he's spoken three times. But, but it wasn't until much, 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 much later that... Um, that the, the Pope has, has done that. Yes? Well, it has to do with, it has to do with a lot of things. It, it, is, it is about forgiveness. Um, you know, Jesus does give authority to the apostles and and we would believe their successors through the laying on of hands through ordination um, the the authority to forgive sins in his name so it's christ through them that is forgiving uh, the sins of people but also holding people bound if they won't repent but it's also about setting people free um, um, from certain circumstances and, re- and bondages, spiritual bondages, and, and that kind of thing as, as well. So it's multifaceted, but it's primarily related, uh, associated with um, the binding and loosing of sins. The binding and loosing of sins. And um, uh, so, yeah. And it's given to Peter and then to all the apostles, but then to the, whole, the church as a whole, not to individuals, but to the church as a whole. All right, well, thank you so very much. Glad that you're all here. Interesting questions. Um, uh, please, those of you who are watching, please know that I did the best to answer according to the abilities my abilities, and I certainly meant no offense to any of our brothers and sisters in Christianity. So, God bless you all.